Let me get a feel for who's here today. How many of you have been, uh, are not yet married? Okay, pretty good number of y'all. Okay, good. This is, by the way, really smart for those who are in that category to go to marriage conferences before you get married. And I think most folks that are married would probably say, yeah, that's really a good idea on that. Uh, how many folks have been married for under five years? Okay, is there anybody left in the crowd? I think there's a few. Let's, who's been married the longest in the group? Anybody here over 20 years married? Okay, a couple of you. 30? Maybe over 30? Okay, we've got two couples there. 40? You all have been married how, how long? 42 years. 42 years. That, that's outstanding. That's outstanding. Do you know how long the average marriage is in the United States? 7.2 years. So you've beaten the odds by over 600% or something like that. Well done on that. That is outstanding on there. My wife and I have been married for 21 years. Harriet and I uh, met when I was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ at uh, Virginia Tech, and she was at West Virginia University, and that was kind of the context in which we met each other. I was 27. She was 26 when we got married. And now all these 21 years later, we have a uh, 19-year-old son who's getting ready to go to NC State. His name is Daniel, a 17-year-old daughter who is going to be a senior next year in high school, and her name is Hannah and a uh, new 12-year-old, our last kid. We're almost into nobody under a teen in our house. Catherine is uh, 12 years old, and so uh, that's a little bit about ourselves. We uh, actually come from North Wake Baptist Church is where Fudd was a member while he was in seminary, and so I do want to bring you greetings from, from that congregation. I serve as an elder there, and I'm also, I do a lot of things at the seminary. I'm now a dean of students there, and I've been teaching ethics there for a decade, but by far and away, my two highest callings in life are my calling to be a husband and a father, and the other one to be an elder in my local church, and so I bring you greetings from those two contexts on that. Um, One of the things I do at seminary is I spend a lot of time doing cultural analysis. Because I'm an ethics professor, and I also serve with a a place called the uh, Center for Faith and Culture, I spend a lot of time doing analysis of culture, kind of watching what's going on around us. And it's kind of fun because one of the places I have a little bit of fun with that is I was actually born in New Jersey, which would officially make me a Yankee. And uh, I've lived most of my life south of the Mason-Dixon line. In fact, what's interesting about living in the south is it doesn't matter how far south you go. If you come from anywhere north of where you currently are, you're considered kind of a Yankee. Um, But I always try to do a little cultural analysis. So over the years, I've kind of developed and kind of understood a little bit about southern culture. And so I wanted to share with you a few. I think I have some PowerPoints, in fact, here, some some slides about uh, things that you never hear a redneck say. So let me give you a couple examples of these. Go ahead and click through that one. Tires on that truck are just too big. Probably wouldn't hear someone say something like that. Uh, I thought Graceland was tacky. You know where Elvis is from? Okay. Uh, I couldn't find anything at Walmart today. Probably wouldn't do that. I've just got too many guns in my closet. Probably not going to hear it. Uh, Too many deer heads detract from the decor. Probably not. Pro wrestling is fake. (laughs) That's a good one. And then this, that's my favorite. <laughs> Things you won't hear rednecks say, checkmate. But, you know, it's, it's not only in the way that we think and talk. There are some visual expressions of, of this culture. So let's see if we've got a few up here. This would be a normal swimming pool. Okay, now let's compare that to a redneck swimming pool. <laughs> I think this should say, don't try this at home. You know, one of those things. Okay, here's a normal recreational vehicle. There's a redneck RV. All right, go to the next one. Here's a regular fishing boat. And the redneck fishing boat. 
Anything I can do to get some bass today, dear? Let me borrow that table. Here's a normal houseboat. And these are real pictures, by the way. Here's a redneck houseboat. <laughs> do we have any more? I'm not sure if we have any more up there. No, we don't. Okay, let me, uh, let me get you to think about this, um, some things about our culture in a little bit more serious light. You know what I discover when I do a lot of these marriage conferences and when I teach my marriage and family classes at the seminary? Um, and, and you all know this, even when you just talk with folks, that, that many people start from when they're real little and dream of what their wedding day will be like and really hope to be married. I would imagine even in a group this size, about 50 of you all, that there are some of you who, particularly some of you ladies who are here, when you were real little, you were probably already thinking about what kind of wedding dress you would have, what kind of day your wedding would be, how you would walk into the church. Is there anybody that's kind of in that category that you would care to admit it publicly that you were... That kind of person thought that far ahead. Okay, some of you, yeah. I actually had one of my closest friends, a guy, was that way too. He didn't think about his wedding day as much. But even when he was in his early years of seven, eight, he always just wanted to be a husband and a, and a, and a father. And uh, I thought, for me, that was a little bit odd. I didn't think quite in those categories. But I do think that generally in the culture, people look forward to the day they get married almost more than any other day in their life. It goes up there. You have Christmas every year. You've got birthdays every year. But the wedding day... The wedding day, what's it going to be like? And so people get engaged. How many of you are engaged here? Okay, a couple of you all engaged. Maybe some that maybe in the future uh, might get engaged. And you remember what it's like, the rest of us who are married, what it was like when you got engaged, that everybody's celebrating you and they're all excited for you and they throw you parties and you get gifts and, you, and you're, you know, you're showing your bling bling off and everything's going on like that. And then you plan for months and sometimes... Uh, you know, I think about the ideal engagement time is around six months, um, but some are longer, some are shorter. But what happens during the engagement is fascinating, particularly for women, because they have to do so much planning and there's so much detail that goes into the wedding day. And then we see hundreds of people oftentimes get mobilized to come to that day to celebrate the event. Fudd, you just did one last night. How big was that wedding? 200. Okay. So the average size in America of a wedding is about 250 guests. And so you're mobilizing all these people for that one day. And then you get married. And what does the culture then think once you're married? And I'm not saying the church culture. I'm thinking culture at large. Something dramatic shifts. Everybody's excited for you on the front end. But then what kind of things do you hear as soon as you're married? Well, honeymoon's over. Ball and chain. That's right. That's right. I can't go out anymore with the girls or the guys. And you get this pretty massive shift. Let me share with you. These are actually jokes from the Internet, but I think they tell us something about the, the culture. Listen to these. These are um, one-liner jokes just to kind of get, make the point. Marriage is like a mouse trap. Those on the outside are trying to get in. Those on the inside are trying to get out. Marriage is the process of finding out what kind of man your wife would have preferred. <laughs> Marriage means commitment. Of course, so does insanity. At the cocktail party, one woman says to another, aren't you wearing your wedding ring on the wrong finger? And the other one replies, yes, I'm married to the wrong man. A man inserted an ad in the classifieds. Wife wanted. The next day he received hundreds of letters. They were all saying the same thing. You can have mine. (laughs) 
Rodney Dangerfield was famous for saying, my wife and I are happily married for 20 years, or we were, uh, we were happy for 20 years, and then we met. That was Rodney Dangerfield's famous line about marriage on there. How do, you, how do most men define marriage? This is the last one of these, but think about the, how, how horrible this one is. How do most men define marriage? It's an expensive way to get your laundry done for free. Now, these are the things that the culture puts in your head and your heart. And we get them as jokes and we kind of laugh about these things. But when you think about it, that's telling us that our culture is really pretty low on marriage. And you would imagine if you've got a 7.2 average length, that's going to be a problem. So here's what I want to do today while we're with this is I want you to, to think differently than what the culture's doing. And, and I want to start by, by just putting some ideas in, in your head and talking through perhaps some ways to think different than our culture about what the nature of marriage is. So let me use this pen as just an illustration for a minute. And, and by the way, I, I really love feedback when I'm going through stuff. So we'll talk together a lot today. I'm not much of a lecturer. I'd rather have conversation with you all. So think with me out loud about this. What are things that you could use this pen for? Okay, obvious, to write with. What else could you use pen for? Okay, you could point at somebody. you got a great name, by the way, Mark. I wish it, yeah. <laughs> what else? Yeah. All right, and most of us have probably seen that on TV somewhere where somebody saved it. Or no, it's a commercial, right, where the guy <laughs> popped that right in there. <gasps> What else? What could you use this for? Okay, yeah, you can open letters or open package with it. Usually you bust a tip and get ink everywhere, but you can try, right? Yeah, what else? To measure distances. To measure distances? Okay, yeah. You yeah, you could use it as a Jason kind of way. Yeah, right. Clean your ears with it. You could tack things up on a board with it. But what's it made for? It's made to write with. And I want to make this suggestion to you that everything has a best, or if you will, a final, highest purpose to it. Our lives do. Human beings do. And I want to suggest to you that marriage does as well. It has a highest purpose that oftentimes we don't really spend much time thinking and talking about. But my suggestion to you today is if, if we can get that in our heart and our mind as our foundation, then maybe some of the rest of the pieces of marriage can have a right place to slip in. And we can begin to understand why it's important to do this or do that or why it's important to avoid this or that. And we can begin to, to think rightly about that. So it's been said that the two most important days in a person's life are when they're born and when they figure out why they're born. And I want to add a third to that. The three most important days in a person's life is the day that they are born, the day they figure out why they're born, and the third one is the day they choose to live in light of the reason they were born. See, because a lot of folks can say, I understand the meaning of life, but maybe not begin to live according to that. Well, in, in marriage, I would suggest maybe a similar kind of thing, that in marriage, perhaps the three most important days for marriage are the day you're married, the day you discover the purposes of marriage, and hopefully, you know, that's going on real early in there. But really the crucial point is the day you decide to make your marriage be about what your, or in other words, you live out what your marriage is supposed to be about. Ideally, that would happen on your wedding day. But for many of us, that's not the case. 
And for oftentimes we need to be reminded of it and adjust course again to be back on course with where we are. So with that in mind, then what I want to do is for this first time together is really think through basically four passages of scripture to set a foundation from the book of Genesis primarily. And to just to think through what is it that the scriptures teach us about the purposes for marriage so that we might understand what the purpose is and then begin to shape ourselves and our lives to live in light of that together for the glory of God. All right. Now, let me give you just a real life illustration while I've used some jokes and things like that. This just yesterday, um, I went to get my haircut. I had let it get really long and scraggly. So I went and got to my haircut. I went to sports clips and I sat down in the chair and a young lady named Tiffany was was cutting my hair. And as Tiffany and I were chatting, um, I asked her if she was married and she said, yeah, I've been married. I said, how long? She said, eight months. Oh, really? That's great. Are you having a great time? You guys are freshly minted. And she didn't say anything. And uh, so I said, uh, are, are you guys from here? And she said, actually, we just moved down from Pittsburgh. And we live in Wake Forest, North Carolina. We just moved down from Pittsburgh. And, uh, and it's actually been really, really hard. Okay, so now I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm an elder in a church. I'm a, I'm a marriage and family professor. And I just had somebody who's a total stranger within the first three sentences of, con- of conversation tell me she's been married eight months and it's extremely hard. I, I, where do I go from there? You know, that's kind of one of those awkward turtles. Do you guys know what this is? <laughs> awkward turtle. If you don't know what awkward turtle is, we'll have lessons I break. But um, she, she, it was one of those awkward moments. So um, as we were having the conversation, I just I said to her, you know, my wife and I have been married for 21 years. And I remember very clearly in our first year of marriage that, that we had some really rough spots. And sometimes in life, you just need some coaching. Um, Sometimes we call that marriage counseling. You can call it whatever you want, but perhaps. And so I segued into the discussion about our, our local church and shared with her and ended up leaving her some material to talk with her about the Lord. And, but what struck me about this, this young woman's been married eight months, and it's already horrible for her. How do we get to those places? How do we get to those places? And, and maybe more importantly, how do we avoid those places? Well, let's think through together some... Ideas. I want to suggest from this first talk, let me give you the main premise, and then I'll review it again at the end. The main premise I want to put forward to you is marriage is not about you. If you get nothing else from the first hour together, marriage is not about you. This young lady, Tiffany, was telling me she really wants to fight hard for her marriage. And so she said, you know, in the last couple of days, I've been sending flowers or, uh, you know, the edible uh, arrangements to my husband. I've been buying tickets, trying to give him some gifts, trying to get him some time that we could be alone together. And I said, Tiffany, all those things are really good. Fight hard for your marriage. But one of the biggest lies of your culture is that marriage is a 50-50 relationship. And what's going to happen is that your husband may not respond. And your temptation is going to be for you to say, I did all this for you. What have you done for me lately? Tiffany, you can't do that. That's one of the great lies of marriage. So let me say that again. Marriage is not primarily about you. It's not about you. So if you have your Bibles, then let's grab them. Let's, we're going to do some study together. If you don't have one, get near one if you can. And uh, I think there may be some extras around if we need some under your seats. And let's go to the book of Genesis. First couple pages of your Bible. And I want you to engage with me on, uh, first off, from Genesis chapter 2 and look at verse 15. Genesis 2 and verse 15. 
Here's what it says. This is, when I'm reading from is the New American Standard. I guess, what are those paperbacks, John, are this? ESV. ESV. So it'll be similar. You'll notice a few word differences here, but listen to how it says it in the New American Standard. Then the Lord God took the man, and he put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Now, does your, anybody who has different Bible translations, does it say that last part any differently? Mine says to cultivate it and to keep it. Okay, Jack's yours is to, to work it and keep it. Anybody else have a different version? Okay, to take care of it. All right. Good. Now, just to kind of orient us to the passage of Scripture, where are we in the discussion? Well, the best way to think about Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 is like this. These are both stories about the, how the world was created. And in Genesis chapter 1, you have the Lord giving to Moses a very big, broad picture. And he, and he describes the first seven days of creation. Boom, there it is. Here's how this all happened. And then it's almost as if at the end of Genesis chapter 1, the Lord kind of says, You know, Moses, that story was so good, particularly day 6. We need to spend a little bit more time on day 6. So it goes backwards in time a little bit at the beginning of chapter 2 and begins to explain how human beings were created. So when you get to chapter 2, verse 15, Eve is not yet created. Adam has just been created in verse 7, and he's by himself at this point. So the Lord then takes him to the garden, and there's some explanation between verse 7 and 15 about the, the creation and what it looked like. And at that point, the Lord takes Adam, and he places him in the garden to do something. Now, our translations say to cultivate and to keep, or to, to work it, to take care of it. But think about this for a minute with me out loud. What was Adam's job in life? Sorry, I'll stay back here. What was Adam's job in life. Here he's, God just creates the world. First guy on the planet. What's his job? Yeah, the text tells us that he's placed into a garden and he's supposed to do something in the garden. So do you think Adam's primary job and therefore humans' primary job are to be gardeners? Farmers? Now, if you're hesitant on that, then think through a little bit. Maybe, do you think possibly there's a higher purpose for his existence and the way that he's supposed to do it, maybe in the how he takes care of the garden? What's really interesting about the Hebrew, and if, if anybody's interested in seminary, here would be my advertisement for why it's important to learn some original languages of the Bible. The Bible was, this part of the Bible is written in Hebrew, and the Hebrew word for that part of the verse, Genesis 2.15, is abad and shamar. Okay, the Lord God took Adam and he places him in the garden to Abad and Shamar. And those two words, actually, when you look throughout the rest of the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Exodus, when you see them in context, they oftentimes are translated to worship and to obey. Now look back down at your Bible again and, and put that in context. The Lord God took the man and he puts him in the Garden of Eden. And what is Adam's primary purpose? What's he built for? What's his life supposed to be about? I suggest to you that Adam was placed in a perfect garden that had no sin with a perfect relationship with God so that Adam would live in a way that he's worshiping God and he's obeying the commands of the Lord. And the way he's doing that is he's in a garden, so he's going to take care of it. He's going to cultivate that garden and keep it. And so the richness of the verse begins to give us an idea here that Adam's job was not simply to be a farmer, but if you will, to do the daily tasks with something far bigger in mind, 
to do those things for the glory of God. Now, let's just stop right here. Let's do a little interaction together because you guys are, are quiet. And if we're not careful, we'll slip into a monologue all day long. Just think through that right at that moment. You've only been with me for about 10 or 15 minutes. What would be some applications to your life or to marriage that you would immediately make just from knowing this one verse? If God put us in the garden to worship him and to obey him, what difference does that make in your life? Let's think out loud a little bit about that. Okay, good. What's your name? See your name thing. Nikki, what's your what's your life context? Are you a student? Are you working? Are you Okay, student at Winthrop. So when you think about that, if, if your life is to worship and obey, what would that what difference would that make on a Monday morning when you don't want to go to class? So what would shift in the motivation? And I don't want to just pick on Nikki. For anybody, jump in on this. What would shift in the motivation if you had a deep abiding sense that my life is supposed to be an act of worship? That's my primary purpose in life. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's not even about the children that you're serving or the ultimate goal of raising godly kids or whatever. It's about it's about God. Now, for those of you who are not yet married, uh, take to heart what Carrie just said. <laughs> that is the that is the long interstate road of marriage, and it is a blessed time. But there are times when you know, hey, it doesn't save you. Marriage doesn't save you. That's the weird thing about our culture. It's almost that's that whole front side before you get to marriage. Marriage is the greatest thing. It's going to save you. And then as soon as you get married, you realize it's not the case. And so marriage becomes a ball and chain. And we have to reorient the way that we're thinking about our world. If marriage, however, has to do with something bigger than ourselves, perhaps this is one of the clues. Adam was placed in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it. But the reason he was doing that is because he was living before God as an act of worship before him. So I got a little bit of Latin on there. I'm a, I'm a Ph.D. ethics professor. I had to put a little bit of Latin. So on your, on your notes, you'll see this there, this little phrase. And the term is exitus et reditus. Here's what that means in English. It's very simple, actually. You could see it from the words there. It means exit and return. It's as simple as that. It means exit and return. But when we see it in a theological context, then, what it means for us is that everything that was created by God... From the beginning, is supposed to return back to God the glory that He's due. In other words, everything that exits out from God's proclamation of creation is supposed to bring back to Him the glory that He's due. And for 2,000 years, this idea has dominated Christian theology that human beings are supposed to be people who are created by God and sent out into His world so that His entire world would bring back the glory that He's due. Exodus. At Reditus, just a really beautiful idea. Romans eleven thirty six. If you want to jot that down as a as a particular verse that helps us to see that, says this: For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. 
To him be the glory forever and ever. 1 Corinthians 10.31 tells you, no, it doesn't really matter whether you eat or you drink, everything should be done to the glory of God. Colossians 3.17 says, whether in word or deed, do all things to the glory of God. So you think about this, as Nikki was just talking about a few minutes ago, this transforms the day-to-day moments of our lives. Perhaps even the, the things that I'm most struggling with can be opportunities Let me get you to look at another passage. So we're still in Genesis chapter 2. Let's go down a few lines there and let's pick up at verse 18. Notice how the passage rolls here. It says, Then the Lord took this man, or sorry, verse 15, He took, takes him, He puts him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it. And then look what happens in verse 18. The Lord says, and pay really close attention to the order of who says what. The Lord said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. So out of the ground then, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon him, and he slept. Then he took out one of the ribs, closed up the flesh at that place, and the Lord God fashioned into the woman the rib which he had taken from the man. And he brought him to the man, and the man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. And for this reason, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother. He'll be joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh. And the man and his wife were naked or as you might say in the South, naked and unashamed. They were naked and unashamed. All right, let me get you to think through some questions with me about the text. Go back to verse 18. Just look at that text real hard, and let me just ask you some questions. You all think about that. Who recognizes Adam's alone? Okay, why is that important? We're going to make some significant implications from this. Why is it important that God recognizes that he's alone? Okay, good. That's a really good thought there. But what, who else? Why is it important that the text tells us that God says it's not good for Adam to be alone? Means it's a part of human nature to be with someone. Okay, good. I think that's also a part of it. And I, we want to be careful to emphasize that. We'll come back to that point in just a minute. Other ideas? Okay. All right, keep that thought in mind. I'm actually going to rearrange that a little bit. Because that's a very common approach to the way this text is looking at there. So let's hold that thought in tension. I'm not saying you're wrong, but let's, let's hold that in tension for a second. What else? It just, it, anything that comes out of um, what the plan that God had, marriage, and how he wants it to work, it's all to his glory. Because it was his idea, it wasn't that man complained and then he did something for him. Okay. It was his plan all along. He gets the glory for Okay, so let's think about what that part of what Tim just said there. This was God's plan all alone. So all along. So Adam is taken and he's placed in this garden. And while he's in the garden, he's worshiping God. He's obeying the Lord and he's cultivating and keeping the ground. The text tells us in verse 18, then God said, 
me read it again just to make sure we're clear on that. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. In other words, if I change the question, who recognized Adam was alone? See, what's Adam doing? He's there. He's doing the job that he had. And who's Adam's best friend? See, Eve's not there yet. So is Adam kind of wandering around? I'm so empty. I'm so lonely. I need someone to pour into my little love cup to make me feel better. (laughs) Do you get the sense that that's what's happening here in the text of Scripture? No, you get the sense that God built a man. He put him in the garden. He's worshiping and obeying. He's cultivating the ground and he's doing what men do. By the way, ladies, this is where original cluelessness of your husband comes from. He's doing his job, and apparently his best friend is God. He's having a good time. So the Lord says, it's not good for Adam to be alone. This is really important. What's the difference between alone and lonely? Let me say it this way. Is it possible to be in a crowd and be lonely? Sure. In fact, some of you may even feel a little bit that way this morning. And all of us in our lives have felt that way. You've been in a crowd and you felt lonely and you don't even know what to do. And sometimes you just leave the crowd because it's just such a weird feeling. Have you ever been alone and not lonely? Sure. We call that a healthy self-image. You could just be by yourself and that's not a big deal. What was Adam? Look back at verse 18. What does the verse say? He was alone. The scripture does not describe him as lonely. Why? His best friend is God. The scriptures will go on and tell us in the New Testament that when people go to heaven, there'll be no giving and taking of marriage. Why? Because we'll be with God. The fullness of our being will be experienced in the presence of God. So there must be a different reason. Adam was not wandering around thinking, I'm an empty love cup. Someone needs to pour into me. That wasn't what he was doing. God recognized there was something big that needed to take place because there's a bigger vision there. So let's make some application to this this very point here. Let me get you to think through this in terms of our pop culture. One of the most uh, popular books among Christians to read on marriage. I don't know if any of you have read it. It's actually a good book in context, but I want you to hear the title of it. The title is His Needs, Her Needs. Now, what is that communicating about marriage? Right. Our main goal is to meet the need of our spouse or perhaps that I have needs and you better meet them. So the book's premise is if you want to divorce proof your marriage, learn what your needs and her needs are and then fulfill those. Well, that's really interesting. Does that mean if we don't fulfill the needs, then they have a basis for divorce? Here's another really popular book among Christians. It's called The Five Love Languages. Anybody read that one or familiar with the title of that? Okay. The younger you are, probably the less you are aware of that. But it swept through Baptist churches for for really over a decade. This was a huge book out there. But think about that. The, The premise of the book is if you can learn the love language of your spouse then you can speak that, that love language to them. So there are things like spending time together or gift-giving or sexual expression, those kind of things. So if you could learn the, lo- the love language of your spouse, it's really good to speak that frequently is the premise. Not a bad idea. But again, think about this. What if your spouse doesn't know your love language? Does that give you a basis to go somewhere else to have it spoken to you? You see, if, if we're like Austin Powers and Minnie me 
that we walk around and we think marriage is, you complete me? Then we've adopted a foreign idea to Christianity. Let me give you the history behind that. There's a fellow by the name of Plato, P-L-A-T-O, different than P-L-A-Y-D-O, um, for those who have young children. <laughs> and uh, Plato, the ancient Greek philosopher, he made the argument that when human beings were first made or when they first showed up, they were actually people that had two heads, four arms, and four legs. And somehow the gods got mad at them, so he split them in half. So they spent the rest of their life looking for their better half. That's Platonic Greek pagan thought. But what we tend to do is run around looking for that person who will complete me. As if marriage is supposed to be primarily about somebody filling me, completing me, making this about me. But perhaps our fulfillment comes with God. And the Lord gives us companions to share that together, that we're built for that companionship. Again, let's make some application. What would this do to our marriage if it was not primarily about us? Let me give you specifics. Let's talk about sex for a minute. It's pretty early in the morning. You've only known me for 40 minutes now, but here we go. We're going to have a conversation about this. (laughs) This is really a common context. Let's say that a man's desire for sexual frequency and expression is higher than his wife's. Okay, this is very common. Sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes the ladies have a higher desire for frequency and expression, but vast majority of the time it's the husband's. And let's say the husband's primary love language is that he wants to have his sexual needs met. His sexual desires are higher. His sexual, uh, in terms of both frequency and type, are higher than the female's. That's his love language. Marriage is because he was lonely. He's now married this person to fill his love cup. And his wife's desire level is quite a bit lower. If marriage is about us, what would you think is the logical conclusion? You're going to have massive problems from the get-go. Because this guy's going to want to have his needs met. And he's married her so that she would meet his needs. She's not meeting his needs. What's his temptation? I'm going to look for somewhere else. So what's happened in our culture? An explosion in pornography. And it's unbelievable. Now the culture's at a point. I just got back from a conference on pornography and sex trafficking. Between the ages of 18 and 24, 80% of men are regularly in pornography in our culture. Okay? That's married. It doesn't matter. It, it, whatever the demographic, Christian or not, 80% are regularly in pornography. And the, the numbers don't change much for those who are married. Why? Well, this expectation, this is about me. What if we switch it? Let's say that a female's love language is lots of conversation. Okay? So she really wants to have lots of communication and lots of time just talking and those kind of things. And this is oftentimes frequently the case where a woman's desires will be much more relational. And what will happen with her is her sexual drive will actually get turned on through conversation. And most men, especially when they're young, think, what? <laughs> What's all that about? Well, let's say her love language is, and I want to have lots of communication. And this guy, um, he... Yeah, he doesn't mind talking a whole lot, but by the, by the time the day's over, he's used up all of his words. 
So he comes home from work. She's just been with kids all day. She's had no adult conversation. And she's a person who's a conversationalist. And so she's wanting to talk at this level. And the guy, he's kind of, you know, maybe he talks a little bit. He's talked all out. Five o'clock, the day's over. I've been with people all day. Honey, give me the remote. You know, that's, that's all he wants. So if that's going on and hers is here and his is down here, is it legitimate for her to say, he's not meeting my needs, I'm going to go find someone who does? The vast majority of affairs that begin with women are because someone has come in and met that need. Now, if marriage is primarily about me and someone filling my needs, then we shouldn't be surprised about any of that. So look back at verse 18. The Lord says it's not good for the man to be alone. So, therefore, I will make for him a helper suitable for him. So look at the text. This is really very interesting. What does the Lord do in the next verse? Look at verse 19. God says it's not good. Adam, you're alone on the planet. It's not good for you to be alone. So I'm going to make you a helper suitable. So what does the Lord do next? Look at verse 19. Well, before you say that, just what is the facts? What does God do? He makes animals. Doesn't that strike you as weird? (laughs) Adam, you're alone. It's not good for you to be alone. I'm going to make a helper suitable. And then all of a sudden a giraffe shows up. Yeah. Apparently the dog is not sufficient. Yeah. Amen to that. I've got way too many of them. but yeah. Yeah. You know, Adam, here's, okay. It's not good for you to be alone. Here's an aardvark. (laughs) What's he doing? What's the Lord doing? Let me read it again. Verse 19. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, and he brings them to Adam to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called the living creature, that was his name. And the man gave names to the cattle and to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But then look here. But for Adam, there was not found a... Helper suitable, same term in the, in the Hebrew, Ezer Kenegdo. He didn't find that one. So what was the Lord doing in verses 19 and 20? Yes, sir. Uh, I believe he was putting the idea in everybody else Yeah, good. It's Gary, is that right? So picture Adam. The Lord's told him he's, it's not good for you to be alone. And so out of the ground pop, maybe not just one giraffe, but two. And they go by and Adam names them. And maybe there's two aardvarks and two alligators and two cattle and, and two pheasants. And as all these things go by, I think Gary's got it exactly right. All of a sudden, Adam spent an entire day doing this. That was probably a long day. At the end of the day, hey, wait a minute. It was, where's mine? And then God says, Adam, I have got an unbelievable surprise for you. You've just seen all of this. You have no idea what I'm going to do for you now. So I need you to take a little nap. The Lord gives him divine anesthesia. Puts him to sleep. And let's pick up then here at verse 21. So the Lord causes a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. 
And then he takes one of his ribs and he closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord fashions into a woman the rib which was taken from the man. So use your biblically informed imagination for a minute. And Adam's asleep in this lush garden with trees of fruits and wonder all around him. He goes to sleep. And then the Lord wakes him up. Oh, hey, Lord, something's missing. And the Lord said, yeah, you ready? Look at this. And he brings out woman. Look at what the text says. He fashioned into a woman the rib which was taken from the man. And then he brings her to the man. And Adam, at this moment, sorry, I had to wake you up there. That's what the Hebrew in the text says. It's he breaks forth into poetry and he says, oh my, now this, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Ain't no giraffe, Lord. This is good stuff. Man. And he breaks forth into this poetry because God has stunned him. He's been in this relationship with God and it's been beautiful. But the Lord adds like he tells us all over the Bible. In Ephesians chapter 1, it's a really beautiful picture where God will lavish upon his chosen. Lavishing upon Adam here the gift of a woman. He wakes up and it's wow. So stop for a minute, those of you who are married in the room. How is your wow factor? How is your wow factor? factor with your spouse Adam's so stunned at this point that anything else on the planet has just paled in comparison to the gift that God gave him those of you who are married how is your wow factor and let me get you to go a little further than that if you're under conviction at that moment let me add a little bit to it for a minute how have you done in expressing your wow factor? It's really, really an important thing for husbands and wives to be in the constant habit of verbal acclamation of each other. Because it preaches not only to your spouse, but it preaches to yourself. This woman is the most stunning woman I know. And not only do I feel that, I tell that to myself and I tell that to her and we grow in that. How's your wow factor? How have you done on that? Harriet and I know we work out at the YMCA. It might not look like it for me, but we try. And, you know, after 30, everything's a defensive battle. You know, you're just trying to keep it from, you know, what's the Chester drawer disease? It's when your chest is in your drawers. And we're trying to avoid all that. So uh, we have a really neat friend there. And, and uh, I was having a conversation with her uh, one day. She was, she's roughly our age. She's been married about 20 years. And I, typically when I'm in conversations with people, I'll, I'll ask them about their marriage. How long have you been married? Those sorts of things. And this woman, she's become a good friend of ours. But her very first response to me when I said, how long have you been married? She said, 20 years. And I said, um, what's your husband like? Her very first thought right out of her mouth was, he's the greatest guy on the planet. And she was totally unashamed of saying that. And I thought, how many of us, when asked that, that that would be the very first thing that comes out of our mouth? Because we're simply used to saying it that way. How's our, how's our wow factor? 
Well, look, look down again at verses 24 and 25. And let me put some more pieces together in this puzzle. So the Lord says, it's not good for you to be alone. So he creates this woman. He brings her to the man. He breaks forth into poetry, and he's just absolutely thrilled with this. And then it says in verse 24, for this reason, for this reason, I want you to have that phrase in your mind. It's not good for the man to be alone. Excuse me. For this reason, the man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were naked and unashamed. By the way, I do want to say to you at this point, when Jesus is asked about marriage in Matthew chapter 19, verse 6, and whether or not it's permissible to divorce or not, Jesus goes back to this passage of Scripture, and he looks at verse 24. He quotes it, that they become one flesh, and then he adds this phrase, Therefore, what God puts together, let no one put asunder. So from the creation, God built marriage this way. Jesus emphasizes it. When you come together in marriage, divorce is not an option for you. Now, I may be touching on some raw nerves at this point. I don't know you well enough to know if anybody's been divorced or is thinking about divorce. But understand that it's God's design for the universe that when two come together as one flesh, they don't pull apart. That's the teaching of Moses. It's the teaching of Jesus. Verse 24 and 25, note that sexual intercourse and sexual relations have a proper place in marriage, and they're good to celebrate together. And we'll, hopefully throughout the day we'll have pieces we can talk about that, and if you want to talk more at the Q&A time, we, we can talk more about some of those things. The Lord God says, though, look at verse 24, for this reason. What is the reason? What is the reason? Think through the verses we've talked about. God takes Adam, he puts him in the garden to cultivate and keep it. He tells Adam, it's not good for you to be alone. So then he brings to Adam this incredible gift of this woman. And he says to him, for this reason, it's not good for you to be alone. Rather, you should come together and be one flesh. What's the this reason? What's the reason? What are Adam and Eve supposed to do together? It would seem if Adam's purpose in life was to worship and obey, then he brings Eve to him so that together they would be people who are worshiping and obeying. If you have your Bible with you, flip back one page. Go to Genesis chapter 1. And look at verse 27 and 28. Let me read these to you. God created man in his own image. Remember, we're on day six now in the creation in this bigger picture in Genesis chapter one. And so the Lord God creates man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. He makes the male and the female. He creates them. And then verse 28, listen to these words. God blesses them. And God says to them several things. First of all, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And subdue it. The word in the Hebrew for subdue there, you might have heard it in common slang, is kibosh. Put the kibosh on it. So the Lord says, Adam, as you have children, as you have sex, and then you have children, you're supposed to be ruling over the earth, and you're actually supposed to make the earth submit. So the question comes back to, if Adam and Eve 
Let me put it in question form. If Adam and Eve, if they had lived a sinless life and they had begun to have the children that verse 28, 27 and 28 tells us to have, they were starting to worship, excuse me, they were starting to multiply and fill the earth and rule over the earth. What kind of people would have filled the earth if Adam and Eve had never sinned? Holy people. Yeah, keep going with that idea. What kind of people would have filled the earth? Yeah. I'll just repeat the, what she said. People that glorify God on a regular basis. What was Adam's purpose in life? To worship and obey. If Adam and Eve never sinned and they started to have babies and they filled the planet, what kind of people would have been filling the planet? People without a sin nature who would be perfect worshipers in everything they did. Isn't that a beautiful picture? In other words, your purpose in marriage is to fill the world with perfect worshipers. That's the way it has been from the beginning. The purpose of marriage is not primarily about having your needs met or someone coming in to make you feel whole. The purpose of marriage is that together, for this reason... You would be fruitful, you would multiply, you would fill the earth. And the earth would come into a condition in which sinless worshipers would bring the entire planet to God as says, Lord, look what we've done with this place. Is this beautiful to you? It's really fun to think that God gave sex as a part of the opportunity for us to have babies to be a part of His mission. You know, our world is so messed up on the whole sexual front. But God designed it. God built it. God had purposes for it. Same with marriage. God made marriage. He built it. There's a perfect place for sex. It's within marriage. And it's for the purpose of bringing Him glory. And we have the audacity to say things like marriage is a ball and chain. Oh, we've come so far. Let me get you to do this together. Let me put some pieces together and then get you to think about this. If Adam and Eve were put on this planet to help there be a planet filled with sinless worshipers, people who would be worshiping and obeying God, then I want to submit to you that the grand design for your marriage was that you too would come together and be about something that's bigger than yourselves. That you would be about something that's bigger than yourselves. So let me ask you just to think this out loud. If this was our disposition in marriage... What would happen to the way that we have arguments together? Think about that for a minute. If, you're, if both of you understood that your marriage is not primarily about you, it's not primarily about getting your needs met, but because we're sinners, we'll bump into each other, right? We'll struggle at different times. How would this change the way we'd have arguments? Okay, very good. What's your name? Sharon? Thanks, Sharon. Yeah, very good. Other thoughts? How might that shift the way that I interact when we're having arguments together? Guys, I guess Remedy Church doesn't have arguments in their marriages, I guess. Arguments in marriages are opportunities to steward them well to grow in sanctification. Mm -hmm. What about when your spouse sins against you? How would this maybe shift your perspective on how to handle that?
Okay, well said. So if there's a bigger purpose in my life than having my needs met, then when my spouse sins against me, I understand that I need to get this forgiven and moved forward from, not looked over, and we'll talk about forgiveness later today. We need to work at the forgiveness so that we can get back to what we're built for. There's a bigger task out there. There is a world-sized task out there. You're, you're, you're doing great, Carrie. Thank you for that. So let me, let me say this. Some of you are, are uh, maybe a little younger. You might not remember the Burger King commercials that they had a song on. The Burger King commercials was Have It Your Way. And it was an, it was an intense ad campaign on there. And so everything was Have It Your Way at Burger King. And so our mentality and our culture is Have It Your Way. So what Carrie's just said is exactly true. But when you're fighting all the years of your life that says marriage is primarily about you and the culture is primarily about you and you can have it your way, this isn't easy. It is not easy on the day-to-day level. You don't just come to one 50-minute talk and think, oh, okay, I've got it all. And now everything's going to be about worship. We have to live out the day-to-day. So think about this. And let me go back to my beginning illustration and just get you to think. Three most important days in life. The day you're born. The day you figure out why you're born. But then third, the day you begin to say, I'm going to live with everything I have in light of the reason why I was born. Same thing with marriage. Three most important days in marriage. The day you get married. The day you discover the purpose of marriage. And crucially, the day you say, I'm going to do everything I can to make my marriage one that lives in light of the purpose it was created for. So how about you? Let's take a few minutes before we break. Let me get you to think through. I put down on your note packet there uh, a a few-minute application point here. So if you don't mind, right where you're sitting there, take just a few minutes. And if you need to just kind of hide it so no one else sees it or whatever, this is kind of like a a test back in college. You're not supposed to let folks see it. Just private between you. Take a few minutes just to pray and write down several truths from what we've just talked about for the last uh, 40, 45 minutes about how these truths might begin to affect your life in your marriage. Just take a few moments for that. Actually, let me just give you 40 seconds just to get started. And this is something you can keep thinking about. And then I'll close this in prayer.
Obviously, I've not even begun to give you enough time to think that through. But for the sake of time, let me pray for us. And then I would really highly encourage you. I'll have several of these through the day that you would take more time in other places to kind of go back and reflect. So look down at the last part of that lecture. Remember, marriage is not primarily about you. And I want to make the argument it's never been that way. It's never been about you. It never will be about you. But it has always been about God and his glory. So as you begin to refocus who we are in Christ, I think that's really an important place for us to think through. So let me pray and close our first time. Father, thank you for this time that we could be together here. I do pray that it would be your word that brings deep conviction and deep change to our lives and help the folks at Remedy Church to be the kind of people who not only taste and see that you are good, but begin to live their lives and their marriages in a way that is so beautiful before you and before a watching world that folks would just want to know more. And that you would find, help us to understand that our great joys will come not by demanding them from one another, but by living according to the purpose for which we're made. Lord, help this massage itself into the particular marriages that are here, whether they're great, whether they haven't happened yet, or whether they're in very, very struggling points. Lord, would you bring change based on your word and the Holy Spirit's moving in our lives. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.